Thanks a lot, Drew. And welcome, everybody. I just wondered, um, from that meditation practice that we just finished, how many people felt sleepy or actually did fall asleep? Some, some people. And how many people felt really awake and alert and not fatigued? Maybe about the same number. And then maybe everybody else is sort of in between the two. So I was sort of, I was inviting you to investigate those notions of sleepiness, um, sleep and, and dreaming and waking up. That's my title for t- tonight. Mindfulness through the day and night. So what I'd like to talk about t- tonight is to share some of uh, pr- my own personal experiences with how practice has changed my understanding of sleeping, dreaming, and waking up, and to, to try and weave together some intriguing fa- facts from scientific research on, on these three subjects. Since we've recently uh, finished a series on the body, it's quite appropriate to talk about the central body metaphor of the Buddha's teaching, and that's awakening. Uh, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson, who are philosophy professors, have written in their book, Philosophy in the Flesh, the Embodied Mind and Its Challenge to Western Thought, that almost all language comes from the experience of the body, and certainly the notion of awakening is no exception. So tonight I'm trying to weave together both the literal and metaphorical meanings of these three things. And I'll talk a little bit about the role that they have in practice or how your practice might affect these. So I'll start with sleeping. What is sleep? It's a special state of the body and along with it the mind that is absolutely necessary to all mammalian, reptilian, amphibian, and bird life. And something we do almost every single day with a few exceptions. (laughs) So how much sleep do you need? I hear people say, I'm so sleepy and I just don't understand it. I got eight hours last night. Well, what about the night before and the night before that? A bank metaphor is, is the one that explains sleep research the best. That is, you withdraw from the sleep bank when you're awake and deposit into the sleep bank when you're asleep. If you withdraw too much relative to your deposits, you create a sleep debt. From what sleep experiments have been able to show, sleep debt is long-lasting. That deficit has to be repaid. It might be over several days, weeks, months. Researchers have tracked sleep, sleep debt over periods of months. The experiments are never long enough to to check it over a period of years, but there's nothing in the research that suggests that it disappears on its own, miraculously. It gets paid back by sleeping. So if, if you carry a sleep debt with you, you'll be more likely to fall asleep in the afternoon or at other times when stimulation is lowered, that things are not exciting, um, It's dark, Uh, you're in a comfortable spot. Apparently it has nothing to do with lunch and everything to do with sleep debt. 
even though lunch is the usual culprit. Oh, I'm falling asleep because I just had lunch. <laughs> I'd say that for most of my adult life, I was in the habit of getting quite sleepy in the afternoons. Sometimes at work, it would be a struggle to stay awake, especially if I was attending a afternoon seminar. When I think about this habit, I would just wish it wasn't true. I would just wish I had more willpower. Stay awake, even in situations when my mind just wasn't that stimulated. When I had the chance, I'd take a short nap and find that that would be refreshing. But those naps seemed for a while really necessary to even get through the day. When I finally started acting on what I'd learned from the sleep experts, I made a point of getting eight hours or more every night. And in recent years, I very rarely get sleepy in the afternoons. So to me, this feels like a skillful thing, like I've finally acknowledged reality and stopped an unproductive pattern. I feel better about the workday because I don't have a big mental struggle in the afternoon and can pay attention to the work itself. This has been a practice of accepting my own body's needs and putting them up much higher than they had been previously in my list of daily priorities. So it just so happened that coincidentally this month, this issue of Tricycle Magazine has this really sweet picture of a sleeping monk on the cover. And I thought, oh, wow, how perfect. I'm giving a talk on sleeping. <laughs> I'll see what, what, what is inside the issue. And there's this wonderful article on green meditation, which I'll uh, allow you to read yourself. But um, there is a fascinating story of a National Institute of Mental Health study that's described in one of these articles. Um, this study followed people for four weeks in darkness. Thomas Ware asked a group of normal subjects to submit to 14 hours of darkness every night for a month. Dr. Ware wanted to know whether modern human beings had retained the circadian rhythms for a prehistoric mode of midwinter sleep, and if so, how different that mode might be from the way they slept today. To his surprise, he discovered not one mode, but two. The second had been hidden inside the first, compressed out of existence by the modern habit habit of consolidating sleep, like work, into convenient eight-hour blocks. In the beginning, Ware's subjects slept for an average of 11 hours a night, repaying a chronic sleep debt he later discovered. But by week four, they were back to eight hours again. However, the hours were no longer consecutive. The participants began each night by lying quietly in bed for two hours and then promptly fell asleep. After about four hours, they woke again for two hours of quiet rest, after which the cycle began again. On analyzing his data, Ware discovered those hours consisted of a mode of awareness that was neither active consciousness nor actual sleep, but another state with an endocrinology all its own. What emerged in that interval carried all the mystery and excitement of a major archaeological discovery. Only in Ware's case, what had been unearthed was the capacity for a type of consciousness that had, for the most part, been allowed to wither away. 
Monasteries and ashrams still kept it alive during the daylight hours, and it survived here and there on the analyst's couch, or sometimes in the artist's studio. But now it was mostly gone. It's tempting to speculate, wrote Ware, that in prehistoric times, this arrangement provided a channel of communication between dreams and waking life that has gradually been closed off as humans have compressed and consolidated their sleep. If so, then this alteration might provide a physiological explanation for the observation that modern humans seem to have lost touch with the wellspring of myths and fantasies. Furthermore, in the fourth week of the study, subjects reported that in all their lives they had never felt so awake. Ware wondered whether if this was actually true or if they only felt that way because they were rested. To determine the truth of their claims, he employed a test developed by sleep researchers to measure levels of wakeful consciousness. And it was just as his subjects had reported, they really were more awake. In fact, they were more awake than the rest of us, more awake than modern human beings were ordinarily thought to be. Sleep is often equated metaphorically with unconsciousness. Of course, from an external viewpoint, a sleeping body looks inert and utterly unaware. There is an association of sleep with death because of the superficial similarities of these two states. Inertness, unconsciousness, and um, death give sleep a bad name, bad reputation. People think that sleeping is an unproductive time, a time when they could be doing something useful or something entertaining. Metaphorically speaking, sleeping is the opposite of waking up, but this metaphor should not be carried too far lest we undervalue the incredibly important yet still mysterious sleep process. So sleepiness is one of the five hindrances to meditation. Sleepiness is broken down into physical sleepiness, or sloth, and mental sleepiness, or torpor. Gil Fransdell described them this way, quote, Sloth and torpor follow sensual desire and aversion in the list of the five hindrances. Accustomed to the stimulation of constant desire and aversion, some people become tired or deflated when these stimuli are absent. After meditation has calmed the mental activity of wanting and averting, sloth and torpor may be the hindrance that needs to be overcome. Doing so renews a healthy state of energy and alertness. Sloth and torpor are forces in the mind that drain vitality and limit effort. Sloth manifests as a physical absence of vitality. The body may feel heavy, lethargic, weary, or weak. It may be difficult to keep the body erect when meditating. Torpor is a mental lack of energy. The mind may be dull, cloudy, or weary. It easily drifts in thought. Being caught in sloth or torpor can resemble slogging through deep mud. When this hindrance is strong, there is not even mindfulness to know we've fallen in. Discouragement, frustration, boredom, indifference, giving up, hopelessness, and resistance are some of the psychological causes of sloth and torpor. 
Mental and physical tiredness may resemble sloth and torpor, but differ in not arising from a psychological attitude, end quote. So notice that Gill distinguishes tiredness from sloth and torpor. It would be really nice if we could just easily discern a simple sleep debt from the more profound issues of the mind, but at least in my experience, it takes a lot more practice. I found that the hindrances of sloth and torpor can be especially powerful in the first few days of a meditation retreat. The stimulation of the regular patterns of life go away, leaving little to counter that pressure of the sleep debt, however large it happens to be at that time. To me, it seems like a good opportunity to accept this. Going with the flow of sleep when it arises rather than fighting it. Or if you'd prefer not to deal with sleepiness as much during the retreat itself, try paying down your sleep debt before you head off to your retreat if you can find the time. (laughs) On the other hand, the need for sleep may decrease considerably while engaged in certain meditation practices. So Shyla has told us um, about needing only a few hours a night while she was away on a long jhana retreat with Pa Aksayadaw, and maybe some of the more experienced meditators here have experienced that. Um, But in our ordinary daily busy lives, rest assured that we need many hours a night. So I thought this would be a good place to just pause and do a little sharing exercise. Um, If you could turn to your neighbor and friend um, and just discuss between the two of you if you can remember how much sleep you got last night. And did you fall asleep at all during the day today? And um, do you know how much sleep you need? And if so, how do you know? So I'm going to keep that sharing to about six minutes, so maybe three minutes um, for each person to just turn to the person next to you and see if you can remember what last night was like, how many hours you got, if you even know whether... You know how much sleep you need? So that sounded like fun. (laughs) We'll have another chance to do that before the end of tonight. So I want to move on briefly to dreaming. So during sleep, there are, of course, periods of dreaming. What is dreaming? Literally, what is dreaming? Stephen LaBerge has defined dreams as perception without sensory input. A really intriguing definition, I think. 
So literally speaking, we know about dreams from the post hoc fragmented memories and reports of dreamer, dreamers through the eons. But science has only recently tapped into the study of dreams as they are happening. And there's no scientific consensus on dreams. Plenty of strong opinions, though. Most researchers seem to agree that dreams have a critical psychological function. Dreaming is sometimes a metaphor for delusion or unrealistic thinking. If any of you watched the TV show Northern Exposure a couple of decades ago, (laughs) Maggie would often say to Joel, in your dreams, Fleischman. (laughs) With the importance that Buddhism places on reality, one could see that dreams might be ignored as simply not relevant to practice. In her book, Dreaming in the Lotus, Buddhist Dream Narrative, Imagery, and Practice, Serenity Young states that there are different tendencies between Theravada and Mahayana Buddhist views on dreams. In some Theravada texts, only unenlightened people dream. (laughs) While in Mahayana texts, (laughs) while in Mahayana texts, dreams are more pervasive and are presented in a positive light. In the Tibetan tradition, for example, there's a whole discipline of dream yoga. So I don't claim to know much about Buddhist teachings on dreams, but I have, for some reason, been fascinated for a long time by the subject of lucid dreaming. There's a proven state of consciousness called, at least for the last hundred years, lucid dreaming, wherein you know you are dreaming while you're dreaming. I've experienced this a few times myself, which now that I've been practicing mindfulness for a few years, I would call it being mindful while dreaming. About a hundred years ago, in a paper presented to the British Society for Psychical Research, the author and psychiatrist Frederick Willem von Aden outlined more than 350 of his own lucid dreams gathered over a period of 14 years. He said that the sleeper, quote, reaches a state of perfect awareness and is able to direct his attention and to attempt different acts of free volition. Yet the sleep was undisturbed, deep, and refreshing. So I just want to read his account of one of those lucid dreams to give you a feel. In this book, The Lucid Dream Reader, he attempted to try to experiment within the dream. He began to try to break a glass goblet. He used two stones, but the glass stubbornly refused to break. He then took a fine claret glass from the table and struck it with his fist with all of his might, at the same time reflecting how dangerous it would be to do this in waking life. Yet the glass remained whole. Disappointed at first, he then discovered it had shattered, but a little late, like an actor who misses his cue. (laughs) He concluded that the dream world, however ingenious an imitation it might be, still had many slips and failures. He then threw the broken remains of the glass out the window in order to hear a tinkling. 
I heard the noise all right, and I even saw two dogs run away from it quite naturally. I thought what a good imitation this comedy world was. I saw a decanter with claret and tasted it and noted with perfect clearness of mind. Well, we can also have voluntary impressions of taste in this dream world. This has quite the taste of wine. In that account, there are sense perceptions, and yet during sleep, the sense organs are inactive. So since then, there have been many accounts in the literature of lucid dreams. In the late 70s, Stephen LaBerge was a PhD student in Stanford and at Stanford and proved that a dreamer was conscious during his dream, an experiment that's been replicated by him and many others countless times since. Popular accounts of lucid dreaming have gotten muddied with the notion of dream control, that the point of lucid dreaming is to pursue various desires or doing things without the constraint of physical reality. But I think it's more relevant to use such mindful periods within dreams to explore the nature of awareness itself. It turns out that one can cultivate the ability to become conscious while dreaming. And I've I've looked into this quite a bit um, for my own personal interest, and I've noticed that the instructions for this cultivation have a, a fascinating similarity with mindfulness meditation instructions. Specifically, they include strongly setting intention, a practice of reminding yourself, and a practice of bringing the mind back again and again to a sort of dream rehearsal. The elements of faith and loving kindness seem to be helpful in this cultivation, just as they are with meditation during waking hours. So I thought I'd pause again for another quick sharing exercise of um, the questions, do you remember your dreams? And have you ever had a lucid dream? wakefulness for a few minutes. There's a normal cycle of wakefulness in us life forms tuned to the Earth's orientation of the sun. The current model is sort of a push-pull between wakefulness and sleeping. Imagine you've just woken up after a sufficient night of sleep and you only have a small sleep debt. If you're a lark, wakefulness might be high and it would be difficult for you to return to sleep at that time in the morning. If you're a night owl, it might take a little time for the sleep inertia to dissipate. But once it does, again, it would be difficult to go back to sleep at that point. As your waking hours progress, the sleep debt begins to build. It builds over the day. There's a little bit of a lull in the midday when the... um, sleep debt seems to 
to increase or the, the push towards sleep tends to in, um, increase. And then it naturally becomes quite strong in the evening, which sends you to sleep at an appropriate time, at least um, if you're lucky enough to have that regular um, regular cycle in your day. Mental states also have diurnal rhythms. I've noticed for myself that when external events are particularly troubling to me, anxiety can cause nighttime waking. The pressure of negative mental states seems to almost break through sleep, driving it away at around 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. When I watch my mind at that time, it amazes me at how drastic and pessimistic my thoughts are. Later on in the morning, I can actually watch as these severe anxieties dissipate and I can contemplate the same subjects without so much fear. It almost feels like a veil drops over them, obscuring their scary nature in the morning. I'm sure there's some kind of powerful process, maybe biochemical, going on. So we wake up from sleep every day, at least once, if not multiple times. A metaphorical meaning of waking up is the ultimate goal of our practice. That is, knowing how things actually are, being aware without delusion. Meditation instructions often recommend meditation first thing in the morning, which in theory could be the peak of diurnal wakefulness. And perhaps it was more generally true for people who were cued to the cycle of sunlight rather than to us moderns with our artificial light. Thinking back to the subjects in Dr. Ware's study who felt so awake after a month of 14-hour nights, it's tantalizing to think about how this restorative practice might have affected their ability to conduct themselves skillfully and with wisdom. So rather than um, pair off and, and discuss two last questions for tonight, I thought I would just open it up for the whole group, and maybe we can share among ourselves um, something that we might have um, picked up tonight or um, something that might have struck you as we, uh, as we went through this practice. So think about when you feel most refreshed and awake, and how does meditation affect your sense of being awake? So I'll open it up to any answers that you might have to those questions, or if you'd like to ask other questions, might be able to answer them. Thank you. Sure. When do you feel most refreshed and awake? And how does meditation affect your sense of being awake? Marity. I'm not lucid dreaming. Do you know that if you are more likely to have lucid dreaming when you are tired and uh, you have uh, you're not quite awake and you need to overbank that withdrawal or waking times when you're more energetic? Lucid dreaming tends to happen when um, when you've paid down your sleep debt and you are in the second half of the night. So it doesn't tend to happen as much in the first half. But in the first half, you're, you tend to go into this um, 
people generally go into stage four sleep, the deep stages of sleep, and then more and more dreaming happens as the night goes on. So by the time morning rolls around or the end of your sleep period, you're dreaming quite a lot. And that's when it's most likely to happen. Um, and if you're trying to cultivate the practice of waking up in your dreams, the suggestion is usually, number one, to be well-rested to begin with, not to be exhausted and just have your body trying to catch up. Um, two, stay in bed longer um, than you normally would. And um, you might wake up normally as, as you would and then go back to sleep and let yourself dream with that intention of waking up in your dreams. So there's a whole um, set of suggestions, but being being uh, healthy and well-rested is a good um, precursor. So um, that special conscious state uh, of this research subject within the two sleep period, is that, is that same similar to lucid dreaming? Um, I don't think there was... From what I've read, it doesn't sound like they're a, a dreaming. It sounds like they're sort of sort of awake, but sort of not awake. And I've read that they're feeling quite calm and um, content. Um, so to me, that sounds very different than what I described later in my anxiety in my anxiety mornings at 3 a.m that's an interval between two periods of sleep, but it's definitely not content and calm. It's more of a, <laughs> uh, a, a very anxious waking. So, so these subjects in that study, and, and the study has been done by others, I believe, that, um, that it's a special state of consciousness that we don't, we don't tend to experience at all. So it's kind of ripe for exploration at this point. And the person who wrote the article in this um, in this issue of Tricycle talks about green meditation, which I think um, is practice of um, letting go of artificial illumination and trying to return to some of these natural or original rhythms. Is it available on the web? Uh, yeah, that is. Yeah. Um. Well, the question about uh, meditation, um, I don't know, for me, if when I'm meditating, then I can I really focus on my breath and really can open to what's happening in the moment. The sense of um, relaxation and of, of rest and well-being is pretty strong. And those, I'm not, my meditation is always like that, but when it is, I, it's very... It's, it's very rewarding and it feels really like well rested. And so I was also, I have another question for you too, is because um, I have the same issue. A really intense day, lots happening, I'm really tired, I come home and I don't sit or anything, you know, I'm going to eat dinner and clean up and go to bed. And I'll wake up at three in the morning or something and I'm just, you know, overwhelmed by. I don't, it just it occurred to me that maybe. Sitting and, and letting those things bubble up while you're sitting and dealing with them in the meditation period might be conducive to preventing some of that little night stuff. <laughs> the fear, I don't know. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe. 
And I've heard I've heard it said that um, suggested that with those nighttime anxious awakenings, if you find that you can't go back to sleep, that it's a good time to meditate at that point. I personally haven't had the um, uh, I suppose perseverance to get out of bed and sit at that point. But I think some people do make that a practice. I just find that getting up and standing up to take the anxiety away. Because you don't have anxiety when you're walking around during the middle of the day. It's only when you wind down. Yeah, I, I do that um, if the uh, wakefulness at the mid-morning like that is especially if it's kind of more active and, pro- and you know, sorting, trying to sort through a solution or something. Mm-hmm. I will um, go and meditate and um, it, it somehow it shifts, it shifts the physical energy and it shifts the mental activity in such a way that, um, you know, 20, 30, sometimes a little longer minutes of meditating and it's gone. Do you do any special type of like focus on your body or, or just your breath or looking for Body and breath are, you... are pretty much my stable yeah. meditative objects anyway. But I've been involved with quite a bit of um, programs with mindfulness and sleep. And one of the things that um, they find is that if you're tossing and turning for 20 minutes, that you should get out of bed and change your physical posture and do something quiet, but not to keep tossing and turning because that just accentuates the activity. Like get up, do some reading or something very quiet. Thank you. Anybody else? Back there. Like uh, meditation uh, redirects you and moves your whole day. I feel like it should be like, it it, it could be like brushing your teeth, but with meditation, you're brushing your mind a little bit, cleaning up the the dirt (laughs) from the whole day. So you find that it's helpful throughout the whole day? Yeah. You do it in the morning? In the morning and before you sleep. Mm-hmm. Parody? Could um, these periods of tossing and turning be seen uh, like all day long go to work and it's stressful? And you can't exactly throw a tampon in the middle of work. So you, you, I think, repress it or suppress it or do your problem. And there's a time when there's no, nothing holding on to that energy anymore when you go to sleep and it rises. And can you, can you see putting that into mindfulness where there may be a connection between something that you're aware of and a corporeal state? Like there's a connection. Should you explore that? Yeah, that's that's one thing that that I've found is that um, 
just kind of stepping back, st- stepping away from the anxiety and looking up at it as an anxiety rather than identifying with it. Like what you said um, about um, confronting it or accepting it, that it is happening right now at 3.30 a.m. or whatever it happens to be. And just notice, bring your meditation instructions to bear on that moment and say, ah, I'm awake. This is what's going on in my mind. So that can be helpful. This can be a little bit more challenging because the energy could be quite strong. And if you didn't want it during the day, you might be not wanting it at night for good. Mm-hmm. So it might be something you naturally step away from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And who knows what creative kind of energy that might be. Well, thank you everyone for listening tonight and for sharing, and I hope that this was beneficial in some way to your practice. Good night.